Hello, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the You Don't Look Like an Engineer podcast. Today, we have a longtime friend <laughs> and an expert in the industry and especially in the water space. We're really excited to have you, Dan. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Sohan. It's great to be here. So, first of all, if you could provide some insights into your background and in including your yeah, city of birth and any memorable aspects of your childhood that influenced your interests and career choices. Yes, so I grew up in Melbourne. I grew up with a dad that loved the water, and so that was part of my journey. So he loved scuba diving and spending time in cold rivers and cold lakes and uh, in the ocean, etc. So grew up around the water, even though it's a lot colder down in Melbourne than it is up here in Queensland, but probably got influenced to be an engineer through growing up and enjoying solving problems. Uh, but having, a, once again, probably some influence from my dad. He was a civil engineer, but I uh, went to Monash University in Melbourne and the first year of that course is general engineering. So I, when I finished school, I thought, oh, look, I like solving problems. Engineering is a really broad course. So it'd be fun to uh, start with that. And so I did a double degree in science and engineering. But as I progressed through the course, I found that I really enjoyed the water uh, and geotechnical engineering subjects because they're much more about nature and the environment. And uh, so I ended up specialising in geotech and water, but it wasn't really until I went backpacking around South America when I finished university that I discovered my, uh, my why. When I finished uni, I ended, ended up in Ecuador and uh, ended up volunteering with a uh, an NGO over there that was doing water and sanitation projects in the remote Kichua communities in the in the hills around Quito. And it was a really amazing experience because we were planning, designing these solutions, and then we we're going out into the villages, living in the community, constructing. Uh, digging the trenches for the pipelines and constructing the water supply systems uh, alongside the, 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 the community and eating with them and just um, building relationship. And at the end of one of the, the, the first project that I worked on there, um, the, the thankfulness from the local sort of children and the mothers and fathers uh, – and the tears in their eyes sort of really made me reflect on how powerful uh, engineering is and how powerful, I'm biased, but how powerful water is. Water engineering is as a profession. And, and so I think that the I, – I describe it a bit as a head-to-the-heart moment where I had, I'd gone to university because I enjoyed solving problems and coming up with solutions, but it was really – it struck me that the why was really around people and changing lives, and um, and from that point onwards, I've I've always really worked in the water engineering space. But I've mm-hmm. and I spent a lot of time in Australia, but also been sort of privileged to work in over twenty five countries and um, meet so many different cultures and hear so many different stories and uh, and yeah, it's just so wonderful seeing the change we can make in people's lives i feel like that is first of all yeah like that is an incredible um experience to have had i feel like a lot of the people i've spoken to especially at uni i feel like once they get into industry it's a bit different but that's Mm. sort of what they want out of engineering Mm. you know they want to be involved with the people and make a difference and see the projects they work on changing lives Mm. but Mm. once they get into industry it becomes unless you're working on site there's like a bit of a disconnect between you know table and what's happening in the real world and that sort of gets lost a little bit I think it's just hard to see the impact when you're not working in like those communities and I think it was really good that you went to you know um a country that is completely different from Australia as well yeah Mm. that would have been um, a very rewarding experience (laughs) yeah I need to go back to South America because it's such an amazing place but so much of my time in in development projects now is in the Pacific and in Asia and Africa. So, uh, yeah, so I've been experiencing a lot of the cultures over there and trying to work on my Urdu. I've been spending a bit of time in Pakistan oh, wow. and 
Bahasa, which yeah. is obviously yeah. in Indonesia, and but yeah, it's 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 so wonderful. Um, mm. We've got such a diverse country, diverse planet that we live on, and we can learn so much from other cultures. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So now that we're talking about um, what you did and well, what you do and what influenced you to choose engineering, if you were to explain to like a five-year-old what you do, what would you say to them? Oh, great. Uh, I love that as a question. Uh, and it's interesting, my kids often are, and my kids are slightly older than five now. I've got <laughs> three girls and uh, they're all in primary school. But um, when I talk about... What I do is I, I just say, look, I provide help provide clean water so you can drink it, and uh, and help take away um, wastewater so that it can be used as a as a treated and used as a product for for people. So that's probably the the simple way I describe it. Are um, they fascinated by that answer? Well, they are. I think the product conversation is an interesting one for kids too because they think about. Um, I think about poo and it's a bit of a fun topic for kids usually, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but it's interesting for them to think about it as actually, oh, you could make energy out of that or you could create biochar and use it for, um, to help sort of plants grow and it changes their, their thinking a little bit if you explain it that way. That's right. That's right. It's, it's actually a very progressive conversation to have with those, <laughs> with those little ones, you know. It's like yeah. you could actually be drinking water that was in the toilet before. <laughs> it's true. It yeah, is true. And, and it's so important to start the conversation at those ages, you know, because there's a lot of stigma and a lot of these projects actually have pushback because of that, people not understanding. Yes, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, no, I do good. think we have a, an opportunity to influence the next generation for sure. And, and I think it's... There's a lot of stig- well, it's interesting. What all the there's so many different stigmas that we have an opportunity to break down, aren't there? When you think oh, about that, honestly. So you you talk about that one. One of the other ones I was I was having a discussion about the other day. We were talking about STEM. I was at a I was on a panel in Canberra last week, actually, and uh, and I think one of the stigmas often for um, engineering is it's all about maths and science, and so people get put down pathways as they grow going up through school if you're good at maths and science and you'll you'll be good at engineering whereas so much of engineering is about creativity and so much of it's around people and relationships and having empathy and understanding the social and environmental impact and and so yeah how do we broaden people's perspective and thinking about what we do is a really interesting topic have you come up with any solutions as to how because that's the topics yeah. that we're truly passionate about. And every time that we have these conversations with people, it's like everyone has their own approach. So if you would yeah. like to share some of yours. <laughs> uh, one, of, one, of my, one of my friends who was actually on the panel last week, she was talking about uh, putting the A in STEM. So uh, call it referring it to as STEAM, but <laughs> thinking about A from, in terms of an arts perspective and redefining how we talk about engineering because um, there is, it is much broader than just uh, maths and science. There's, there's so much, there's, it, it's so, such a holistic uh, um, industry and vocation that we work in. How much of that do you think, like, obviously we need to cultivate that thought process in people coming into the industry, but how much of it do you think, is it more a percentage that we need to change the people already in industry? Because I feel like young people come in and they're already like excited to have all these, you know, cool ideas, but people already in the, in the industry is like, no, we just need a solution for this problem. And yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation piece and probably the way engineering's taught now is changing a lot, isn't it? So I'm, I'm involved as a, as an adjunct professor at UNSW in Sydney and they've now got a minor in humanitarian engineering and, uh, and there's a number of other universities starting to do that as well. But the way engineering's taught is much more, uh, there is much more consideration for the social and environmental impact. So people get go through university hearing that and experiencing that and wanting to be part of that when they get into the workforce. So, yeah, if there's cultures where that's not um, the norm, then it's an interesting conversation of how do how do how do you how do how do you as a generation coming through how does the next generation coming through 
um, influence it, but how do, how do the leaders in our industry and in organizations try and shift that culture as well? And um, I mean, every country, every company, the culture in it and its approach to engineering differs a lot, but yeah, uh, yeah we do need to shift we need to shift the thinking of people coming through schools, but we also need to yeah, think like to shift the thinking the of people uh, in in organisations that what they do in, and what what their teams do is is about so much more than uh, concrete and steel. Yeah, <laughs> but touching on humanitarian engineering, do you think you're more a humanitarian engineer than a water and like wash sort of specialist? It's a good yeah. question, isn't it? Yeah, I think I definitely am a a passion driven person mm-hmm. and so I, I i've found over my career when i've been on projects or in roles where i haven't been able to as closely connect with uh that why and that purpose i've found it harder so i definitely like being around people that are inspired um and yeah jump get out of bed because they're excited about what they do so I would say that humanitarian um, side and that environmental focus is is really what uh, drives me as a person. Um, I really like that that you, I guess, from an early age knew you why because I feel like a lot of the young professionals sort of like struggle with finding out and there's a lot of pressure, you know, when you uh, finish high school and you have to choose a career and everything. Um do you have any tips or any advice that you received earlier in your career that you would like to share with people regarding your why and your values? Uh, I think don't be afraid to try new things and stretch yourself. And I think by stepping out of your comfort zone, you learn a lot about yourself and about what makes what drives you and what gives you life and also what... Um, might make what you might find more challenging in terms of uh, in terms of your passion and your and your why. So, I mean, a good example for me was after I'd been working in Melbourne for a few years, I got asked to go and set up a water business for for Arab over in in Singapore. So, for setting up the water business in Southeast Asia, and it was the first time I'd I'd travelled a lot, but it was the first time I'd lived overseas. And living in a culture which is very different, uh, at first I found challenging. But over time, it, it made me sit there and go, well, why am I finding this so hard? So I found in, in Singapore, they're very structured and very process-driven and very systematic and uh, very uh, follow the rules uh, as a culture. And I found myself getting really frustrated. And I had to reflect on, well, what is it, like? What? What? It, why am I finding this frustrating? And how do I learn to adapt and adjust and embrace the culture that I'm in and find the find the gold in it, as well as um, sort of recognize there's some things that are different. And over time, I learnt Singapore has a huge Chinese population. It has a huge Indian population. It has so many. It's a very multicultural city. But I just loved. Uh, I learned to just love the friendships that I built with people of Chinese background, in Indonesian background, Malaysian background, Filipino, Indian, and and the way the family culture works over there. And it's a very we're very individualistic in Western culture, generally speaking, and in a lot of Asian cultures, they're very collective as a model. And uh, and so looking for the gold in whatever situation you're in, and trying to learn. Uh, and embrace that was is part of the journey. So, I suppose in, it's a long way to answer your question of how do you find out your why. I think you find out your why by um, by exploring lots of different things, and and each time you find something that clicks with you and resonates with you, uh, sort of adding that to your um, to your list of things that uh, bring you joy. Yeah. And I'm. Uh, I'm reading a book at the moment. Well, I've just read a book at the moment called "Be Your Future Self Now," nice. and it's by by a um, guy called Benjamin Hardy, who's a sort of organizational psychologist. But one of the things in the book he talks about is um, writing. It's a lot of it's about thinking about 
dreaming about who you would like to be if you had no constraints in the future and then uh, and then living like that person. And one of the exercises, you could choose the time frame, but you write a letter from yourself, your future self to your current self, talking about who you are and what you're doing and giving yourself advice. And um, and it's really enlightening when we when we take away the constraints of the own limita- the limitations we put on our mind and try and think very blue frame, blue sky and big picture, how exciting life can be. Sweet. And and I think uh, don't limit yourself because everybody has so much potential and life is so extraordinary if we decide to embrace it and and dream big. And I love the saying if you um, if you shoot for the if you if you shoot for the moon and fall short, you'll hit the stars. But if you aim for a skunk, you'll hit a skunk. And uh, and I think it's that it's that that sort of mentality for me. My advice is carpe diem, which like I don't know. Have you seen the movie Dead Poets Society? I don't it's, think so. It's an, it's it's probably like it's been around for a few years, but an absolute classic. So part of your homework is to go and watch Dead Poets Society. But uh, amazing list as well. Homework. Yeah, the book. <laughs> <laughs> the Dead Poets Society, one of this is about a, a really inspiring teacher in a school. And it, it, he was in a really stuffy private all boys school and they had the life, they'd sort of been disciplined and had the life beaten out of them in some ways. And he came in and, and he kept saying carpe diem, which obviously means seize the day and help to, helping the kids to dream about what, what their why was and what they wanted to do rather than what the school wanted them to do or what their parents wanted them to do. And uh, sometimes we need to step out of that frame of reference of what does the world expect expect us to do and what does the world expect us to be as opposed to who we're called to be. And I think that's, that's that thing. And I'm, that said, I'm still doing it now. I just read that book and I'm still trying to go, actually, Daniel, stop worrying about what other people think about you and oh, just wow. be who oh, yeah. Who you're supposed to be, yeah. and you, you need to keep recalibrating and reminding yourself that uh, that because we keep trying new things. We go, hang on a sec. That's you know, I mean, that was a good experience, but was it exactly? Is it is it exactly the direction I'm supposed to be going in now, or is this is this where I'm being called? And is this the is this what brings me life? And is this where I'm playing in the things that uh, get into my place of flow? Have you heard the word ikigai? Yes, they can jump in anywhere. Yes, it's like an so intersection that, yes. of what you yeah. what you love and what you want to do, or something. Yeah, and what the world needs. It's an intersection. Yeah, of, yeah intersection of what you love, what you want to do, what pays, like getting paid, and um, yeah, there's four different areas to it. But fundamentally, it's about finding that sweet spot where you're playing in your why, and you know what I mean, getting paid's a joy because you're doing something <laughs> that brings you life, yeah. and. Uh, so for me, I've been sitting there going, well, what's my place where I'm in that ikigai? What's that that flow of uh, doing things that I'm not doing work just to get money. I'm doing work because yeah. it's something that Makes you want to jump out of me, bed in the morning. Makes me want to jump yeah. out of bed. Yeah, Two right. things that come out of that. Oh, sorry, Laura. <laughs> no, I was just going to add that. I'm not going to say a question. I'm just going to say okay. that it's so refreshing to hear someone at like, you know, at the stage you are in your career to to still be like, I'm still learning and I'm still and like, you know, finding up. Recalibrating because yeah. like someone who's literally like from what is visible to the, to the outside person looking that it looks like you grabbed every opportunity, made a path for yourself and are literally doing what you came to do in engineering yeah. um, to feel that you still need to, you know, consider, am I on the right path, recalibrate and like, you know, maybe this every experience is not a hundred percent, but you're still learning so much from mm. it i think that's comforting for anyone who's like possibly stuck in a mm. in between jobs or in in a role that they're not currently amazed by and it can help them yeah. stay focused i think that's that's a good point and one thing one of the things i would say to encourage people is uh don't don't be afraid to fail or don't be afraid to take don't be don't feel like your life's ended if you've taken on a, a job or stepped into a company which you feel like hasn't worked out exactly the way you want it to because um, they're all learning curves and learning experiences and you learn more through the challenging times often than you do through the really successful times. Yeah. And they really, if you, you can either let hard times crush you or you can let hard times shape you and mold you and, and, <laughs> 
and define you. Have you ever had an experience in engineering where it was like, this is not taking me where I want to be. Like, I, I just kind of have to, I don't know, like I need somewhere else to be more involved in the in what I want to do to make a difference. Yeah, yeah I've often felt that. I mean, I think um, early in my career, I, I took on a role in a uh, piling contractor. Uh, so geotechnical, deep foundations for the non the non-engineers amongst us and uh, and I was working in uh, the company was based in Melbourne but I was working all over Australia with them and had a lot of fun in terms of we were doing tendering uh, estimating design construction so it was a, it's one of those rare industries where you get to be involved in all parts of the of the project but uh so I was enjoying the technical side of it, but then if I sit there and think about, was I was I helping to f- develop solutions that were transforming people's lives, or was I having a profound impact on the environment, or responding to climate change, or uh, doing things that really inspired me? So uh, I was doing lots of really tech technically good things and I was working with good people and it was a good company but was it the um was it really aligned with my was it in my place of ikigai was I really in that sweet spot of that flow and I wasn't and uh and I think that I was reflecting on so you know it was like one of those recalibration points where I thought uh and that was the the moment when I moved uh into consulting and joined ARP and felt much like I resonated much more with their sense of purpose as an organization and my sense of purpose. So I'm curious to know, you chosen like water, energy, resources, and is there a reason why you chose these specific areas? You talk about your passion for climate change. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, well, I I mean, I think we we talked about water and water's always been probably my something that's been a, a constant through my career since since that time in Ecuador and the over over time that interest has evolved more and more as I've thought about well what does what does humanity really need and we think about food and agriculture we think about energy and water and they're probably uh, when I think about the basic needs of society then they're, they're the ones that have really they're ones that are easier to directly connect with in terms of uh, the need. But then as as we've uh, started to become more and more aware of climate change and issues around uh, decarbonisation, et cetera, that interest has sort of evolved and intersected in different ways. So there's the, there's the humanitarian side of going and working in a developing country with to deliver water and energy and resource type solutions. But then if you think about it from an Australian perspective, how do, how do we as engineers help with accelerating a response to climate change that affects everyone? So one of the, one of the, one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment is over in Western Australia and we're, we're establishing a development company and, uh, we've identified the fact that for Australia to decarbonize quickly, we need to identify the resources we need and extract them quickly and develop solutions quickly. So in the Pilbara, Northwestern Australia, we have huge deposits of lithium, vanadium, rare earths. Uh, there's a, there's obviously a huge amount of iron ore. Um, and there's a number of companies that want to also at the same time set up hydrogen, green steel production, and uh, agriculture. So we've got all these resources needs that are needed from a decarbonisation perspective. And one of the things that's slowing it down is that getting water to these to these mines to either open them or to dewater them in a sustainable way. And the second part of it is we've got First Nations communities right throughout the Pilbara that in a lot of instances have been treated poorly or not considered uh in a way that delivers good outcomes for them. So there's these nexus. So I've often thought about the nexus of food, water, energy on a city perspective or on a international development perspective. But one of my latest areas of focus is 
how do we unlock decarbonization quickly and how do we use water as a catalyst to do that? And how do we do it in a way that, that delivers outcomes for communities in those areas? So I think for me, it's, it's just there's such an obvious synergy and connection between water, energy, resources, uh, and the benefits that we can provide for communities. And thinking in that lens in different types of contexts is something that is really uh, exciting. And so for me, creating new ideas and new solutions is something that, that brings me a lot of energy. I guess a lot of the times when people do think about water-related issues, it, it is more of an international issue that they see it as. So I think, mm. yeah, bringing that home and talking about how we can, um, yeah, create new energy solutions and just because, yeah, the Pilbara is massive for mining. Um, I guess what I'm curious about your thought process in this, in in developing all these solutions, is like I guess it involves a bit of like a system sort of mindset. Uh, be able to see big systems and picture them connecting and that sort of thing. Um, what steps do you think an individual can take to cultivate that kind of mindset and apply it effectively? I think it's, yeah, I think I agree. I think it's a systems mindset. Probably one of the things I think that's helped me along the way also is always trying to constructively uh, ask the question why. So there's the why about our purpose, but there's the why about why why do we need to build that pipeline? Couldn't we do, is there another way to do it that might deliver better environmental and social outcomes and cost less money? Or why do we, um, why have we always used this methodology for doing something when uh, we might be able to come up with a different solution? So I think, uh that creative side of how we think as engineers is something sometimes we stifle it a little bit with the Western education system. And, and so we're taught to follow processes and we're taught to yes, think in a systems way, but um, I think there's also a lot of room for us to don't be afraid to dream. Don't be afraid to uh, step outside the box and, and challenge constructively challenge the status quo it would be sort of, something that I, I think I've always done. It doesn't maybe maybe it's uh yeah it as long as it's done in a productive way, I think it can be real value to to people that you're working with. I see that you uh when I was researching about yourself for this interview <laughs> I saw that you had a business administration and economics background. And I'm curious because in the industry that we're in, we face people that, you know, they are like extremely technical driven and engineering is everything they do. And, you know, it's amazing mm. to them. Did you ever face anyone or like, was it challenging to to have those interests in business or that business mindset as well um, when you were working with technical driven people? I think so. I think you can... I think at times I felt like a round peg in a square hole in different organizations or in different roles that I was in. And um, there's, there's, there's lots of engineers out there that are probably better designers than I am because they're really, they've got a real eye for detail and a real patience and methodical approach to doing things. And that is so valuable. Uh, but um are they 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 have they might not have strengths that I have so you know but not being being sort of being able to recognize the strengths in others but also being able to recognize well what are the strengths that you have and then how how do they add value and diversity to uh, a team um, and an, and an environment and a culture that you're in so I think that the for me it was always looking at well if you look at the why as an engineer, often um, and the per, per, or the outcome that a client is trying to achieve, often there's a, there's a social element to that. There's often an environmental element to it, and there's an economic element to that. And so, if you talk about the business part, business aspect of that that you're referring to, understanding the um, the drivers of the client that we're working with and the environment within which they're working or operating is really important. So uh, I think that for me, it was always 
that sort of why conversation, asking questions conversation often takes us past the, just the technical solution to the, the fact that there's a um, broader reason and rationale and purpose for what you're doing. I really like that. And I really like that at the start of this conversation, you were like empathy is sort of like um, a value or a personal attribute that you recognize that is really important in this industry. And especially in the work that we do, um, and yes, you're right, like creativity and be able to actually listen to what communities needs uh, is mm. so important. Um, so again, it's really refreshing to hear that someone has <laughs> that approach because it's really holistic and it's important in leadership. We continue to have these conversations in our podcast and a lot of people actually think that mm. leadership is something that we are getting wrong. I'm going to say that. <laughs> In the industry, okay. what what do you think that mm. um, we are missing in in our engineering sector about leadership? Like, what is that is that we're getting wrong? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's funny. It's a big question if we think about the industry as a yeah. whole. I think every company is so different, and even the differences between private sector and the public sector or different types of engineering can vary a lot. But the, I think the concept of sometimes in the engineering profession, people get promoted for their technical prowess as opposed to their, um, as opposed to their social and social, their environment, like their EQ and their ability to actually lead and inspire and encourage and guide and delegate. So often if people, if, if you're in a very technical profession, whether it's engineering or IT or whatever it is, and you're very good at something, you often can progress into leadership, but sometimes people are very technical are also very focused on, uh, the detail and therefore it can be hard for them to actually delegate and empower. So um, part of it's about recognizing and championing the strengths in different people. And some consultancies are doing this where you have pathways for people who are tech for technical excellence and you have pathways for people who are very strong at project management and you have pathways for people who are really good with clients. And, uh, and so it's, I think we need to get, and I think the private sector is probably doing, in some ways, has been a, a little bit more progressive in that. Um, recognizing leadership in people is really important, as opposed to just recognizing technical excellence in terms of if they're if they're leading teams. I am so fascinated about the technical work that you do, but I feel like that might have to be a different segment because there's so much to <laughs> learn about your uh, the the progression of your career and like how that impacts. Um, not just leadership, but aspiring engineers. I feel like now that we're talking about technical and like the EQ side of things, do you feel like, okay, it's going to be a bit long-winded, but the work that you want to do in like wash and water is very technically driven in, in some aspects, but also mm. you have to speak about it a lot and you have to share the work that you're doing and go out and, you know, and be on panels and that advocacy is also required, but that kind of takes away from the technical like it takes time, obviously, and time away from a skill. Yeah. Has it been a bit of a trade-off? Like, have you had to forego uh, learning good technical skills mm. that you feel like? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. I think the, I think I've definitely gravitated towards the leading people, leading teams, listening to. I probably. I think one of my strengths and one of the things that I enjoy is almost being a, a translator. So you go and you know, and you go into whether it's in international development or in a, an Australian context, if you go into a we can the, the traditional approach to international development as as you probably know was in the past and this is a sweeping generalization, but Western cultures we'd often go into a country and we'd do something to a community, uh, like we go and build something and uh, and then leave and think that we'd solve the problem as opposed to going in, building relationship, asking questions, understanding them and their their needs, and then helping to co-develop something which they can feel ownership in, but also build capacity uh, so they can uh, they can actually maintain and operate it in the future. So I think the ability to listen and ask questions and 
seek to understand and learn because we everyone has their own context and their own uh, environment they're in and their own sort of educational approach and their own hierarchy. Uh, but how do we understand that and then um, learn from it and then develop develop solutions in a collective way is really sort of probably a different model. And so it's a long way to answer your question of, for me, it's about asking questions and building relationships and getting, um, building, uh, inspiring people and encouraging people and, uh, and then bringing teams together that have technical skills. So often, yeah, I gravitate towards the, um, hearing, hearing, listening, learning, and then trying to sort of repeat that back in a way that sort of resonates and reflects with whoever I'm working with and, and, and sort of communicating that with the team. I think sometimes it's almost like that role of a translator between the, the, what someone, what someone's looking for or a community's looking for and what the technical team thinks needs to be done and, being the conduit to make sure that it works well. And I think those skills of listening and learning and asking questions and being that translator, if you can do it in an international development context, it the same thing applies in an Australian context or as well. So I think sometimes we undervalue the ability of people to work in different countries and different cultures when we think about Australia from a consulting perspective. They're most often um, thought of as two very separate boxes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the skills are so powerful. Yeah. I guess um, you've, you've sort of known what you wanted to do and there's been a bit of a path paving work you've had to do to get there. How much of it was you focusing on just you know doing the best at your current role and how much do you reckon is more building self-advocacy and you know putting um your hand up or speaking and like how much does that get you into positions where you want to be I guess for someone who's so wowed by what you've done and wants to end up on a similar pathway yeah uh so I think whether you call it self-advocacy or not I think it's definitely if you're definitely taking opportunities and um, stepping into them. And I think there are, we, we, yeah, there's the pathway of doing our job really well, which I think is really important. And, but then also sitting there thinking, Oh, there's this, uh, there's so many different industry committees and, and bodies and organizations and so many different areas we can volunteer in and, and sitting there and thinking about who can I, if you're if you're wired, if you're wired to, about for relationships and for people and for influence and impact, then I think you often gravitate to going. Yeah, I think I'd really enjoy being on that committee because I could build networks and learn from other people and uh, help um, help drive the industry in a positive direction. So I think it comes. I would probably say that um, I encourage people to get involved in lots of things outside of their day-to-day job because you grow a lot and you learn a lot, which also helps you in your day-to-day. But um, And those networks and relationships that you make and the opportunities you have to speak and the opportunities you have to lead are all ones which help you to grow as a person. Things like when I, early on in my career, things like LinkedIn didn't exist. Yeah. Um, so the way people advocacy works nowadays or the way people share messages um, with social media has evolved so much. And I probably had no idea when things like LinkedIn were coming in, I had no idea of the power mm-hmm. of social media. Uh, but it is a really amazing tool if you use it to and that's, I guess, what share I was positive messages. Yeah, because like mm. it's there's so many people involved in very cool things. Like I know in our water team here in Brisbane, um, there's a lot of people doing some very incredible work for places like Tonga and you know, helping them mm. in climate change. But um, I guess that's the thing where like how much does talking about these things on LinkedIn help open more doors and like help you get on those pathways as opposed to, okay, yeah, you've delivered that well and everyone at the company knows um 
yeah, but yep. should you be investing time and putting it into the? I, I think so. I mean, I think it, it's interesting. Well, my experience with LinkedIn has been so many people have connected with me over the journey because there's been things that I've posted about where it'll be uh, either a country that they hate, they really connect with because they've got a passion for seeing change in that country or it'll be about a type of technology that they want to explore or it'll be so it I think it LinkedIn can be a powerful tool for people to connect on areas of similar passion and for you to um, and I, I mean I always I encourage people who are senior in an organization it, it's very easy when you're busy to to not be open to approaches but I love I love sort of uh, connecting up with people and trying to make time to have a coffee or a Teams chat and hear a little bit of their story and connect them with often it's often it's quick chat to connect them with someone else who's the right person for them at that right time or that right season. So I think as as people who've been in the industry, we have a uh, and I'll go so far as to say an obligation, but we we have a um, I think we have an opportunity to have to to really um, help shape and encourage and inspire other people on the journey and open doors for them and uh, and everyone who's everyone who's got most everyone who's progressed in their career have had people open the doors along the way for them. So how do we pass it on? How do we pay it forward? Is is something I'd encourage people with. Did you have anyone helping you? Did you have any mentors? I've had lots of people, yeah, lots of different mentors, and I think that both um, both within organisations. So I was I was at Arup for sixteen years and had some amazing leaders uh, and people that encouraged me and supported me, uh, and at times counselled me when I was going through a tough time uh, and showed some empathy. But uh, but there was also lots of people outside, and I think this. One of the other things I'd encu- I love to encourage people about is, yes, mentoring's fantastic, but sometimes you have to go out and find your mentor as opposed to wait for a, a formal program to come and find you because um, a lot of it happens organically and identifying people that you think are inspiring or encouraging or um, a little further down a pathway that you would like to, to see yourself on in the future is um don't be afraid to reach out and say, "Hey, can I have a chat? Can we um, love to? I love to sort of ask you some questions and learn from you." And most people will say yes. Speaking of pathway, you had mentioned uh, when we were talking about you know lining up dates that there had been a change in uh, what you were doing career wise, and there was a, a new pathway mm. that was going to be really cool. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So I mean, I spent the last two years working at Unity Water uh, as an executive for what executive manager of sustainable infrastructure solutions, which was essentially uh, the executive looking after strategy, design, planning, design, construction of, of their assets. Uh, and I resigned a couple of months ago. And it probably for me, it's been one of those opportunities to explore what does it look like to, to put my entrepreneurial hat on and step out of the, of the corporate world for a while or the full-time employment for a while, I should say, to to look at some different pursuits. And one of the things I'm working on is um, setting up a that water development company in the Pilbara. So it's called Pitwater Capital. And really the purpose of that's fast-tracking decarbonisation, bringing sustainable water supply and helping sort of transform First Nations communities in that part of Australia. So that's uh, quite a different model uh, and I could talk a lot about that, but we probably don't have time today. But so that's one of the things I'm working on. Um, I've stepped into a CEO role of a of a company called Waterstart, and Waterstart does a lot of. Uh, they're basically like an innovation accelerator. So they partner water utilities with. Well, they identify innovation or technology needs that utilities have. Uh, and then um, partner them up with technology companies, and uh, and then and then facilitate different funding models with government support, etc., to pilot and and where appropriate implement technology. So I'm looking after the Australian um, Australian uh, 
practice for Waterstart. They're also over in the US and in the UK, but I'm off to Nevada for the global board meeting of Waterstart in December. And we'll be sharing sort of different innovation innovation approaches that have been used by water utilities and and really about sharing knowledge and, and trying new things. And, and sometimes in our water industry where for, for good reasons, we can be uh, quite risk averse because we have an onus to provide clean drinking water. But how do we how do we facilitate and enable innovation is something that I'm exploring. And then probably the other part of it is really stepping onto a range of advisory boards and and stepping more into that international development space. So I'm off to Somaliland in a couple of weeks. So one of the groups now have you heard of Somaliland? Some people haven't because everyone thinks of Somalia. <laughs> But Somaliland was like a breakaway from Somalia. And they're the largest country that's never been recognised as a country in the world. And uh, yeah. uh, and there's, there's a whole lot of history and reasons for that, I, which I had to look up, to be honest, because I only knew a little bit about them. But uh, but there's, I'm on an advisory board for a group called Operation Water, and they were set up by these uh, investment bankers from New York. And the... Uh, the model really often you see a lot of not-for-profits or NGOs set up by people with a technical background or people that are um, humanitarians, but often with a very grassroots fundraising type model. Um, so it's quite unusual, an unusual model where uh, these investment bankers became passionate about water, left very high-end careers in New York, set up this this group to focus on Africa, but they're very skilled in engaging with government, uh, structuring public-private partnerships, attracting finance, but they attract finance from private net worth individuals that aren't um, looking to make profit out of their out of their giving. And so the first PPP that we've been working on is has been in northern Mozambique. And the model is if you can bring finance at scale, engage with government at scale and and structure large-scale solutions, we can respond to the humanitarian crisis more quickly. So if you think about a water project and you go in and drill an individual well or you drill a few wells in a village, it has a great impact, but there's hundreds of millions of people without water, clean water and sanitation. So imagine we can develop uh, models which can deliver solutions for whole regions of Africa. And so... Northern Mozambique, we're looking, we're implementing it at the moment. Uh, Somaliland's the next project which we're working on, and I think it's a really uh, exciting model. Which for me, it's it, it's about trying new things and saying, well, I've, yeah, I've done a lot in the international development space and really enjoying it, but is there a different model that we can use to scale things differently? So, so probably the three areas are decarbonisation in the resources sector. Uh, innovation and technology and then different models for, for uh, international development and, and scaling solutions. So there's probably a few things. Uh, I don't know are changing the world. Um, you probably expect me to talk about one thing. I'm convinced we don't have the same 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds absolutely incredible because unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, a lot of like the committees and, you know, there's uh, so many people I've met who've been passionate about water and they'll join all these youth for water things and it ends up being like you said a grassroots fundraising exercise in general and that's it doesn't elevate mm. too much more from that um which can be moderately yeah. frustrating <laughs> so something set up like operation yeah. water just sounds yeah a like laura said you're changing the world <laughs> and it sounds so effective and well in interesting enough so speaking of social media mm. i it was a cold. It was a cold call message from Ryan Phillips Page, who founded Operation Water. He'd heard about me in Australia or seen one of my posts and connected with me and said, "Hey, I'm doing this thing in Africa." And I'm thinking, "You're in New York. <laughs> you're an investment banker. You know what I mean? It'd be so easy yes, for me yeah. to shut down the idea, as opposed to go, oh, yeah, let's have the conversation yeah. and see whether there's something different we can do." And we've been exploring it different. And my role and involvement's been evolving over yeah. time, but. Um, being open to new ideas and new people and new ways is something that we Get need on to LinkedIn continually. Get people networks. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Connections. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, honestly. Oh, mm. Really fun. 
Yeah, and you probably have like, um, I guess, because you've worked in so many different places and been connected with so many um, people. Is it interesting? Like, I'm sure you still talk to a lot of them, like seeing how the projects you've worked on have shaped communities and stuff like that. Yeah, it is fun. It's fun to, to, to try and stay connected to the projects and the places you've been because uh, the relationships you form uh, are ones that should should be bigger than just uh, well, you want to see the impact of the project, but you also want to just hear that stay in touch with the journey of people's lives. And I think that, um, yeah, I love, I love the way we get to, I think we often get invited into a community. I worked on a project in Indonesia a few years ago in Bandar Lampung and I was living in Singapore at the time and was flying in and out regularly. And it was very, I think the first couple of trips, it was a World Bank funded project, water supply for a, new, for a developing city. And the first couple of trips, it was so hard because uh, we'd go over there, I, we'd ask for a whole lot of information, everyone would nod and say yes. Uh, and then we'd fly back to Singapore and the information wouldn't come and you'd try and call or you, and they were trying to be polite and supportive. Now, sometimes they didn't have the information or they didn't, uh, they didn't know how to send it or, um, or it was, it was just breakdowns in communication. And so after a couple of trips, I thought, how am I going to, are we going to make this work? And I found one of the, in our Singapore office, I sort of identified who had an Indonesian background and I found this graduate who wasn't a water engineer but I thought, um, I said to him, I said, oh, and his name was Daniel as well, which was, he had a great name. So I had to, had to uh, connect with him. But I said, Daniel, come, come along with me on the next trip. I'd just love you to help translate. But also just we're having trouble with information flow, et cetera. So I took him over on every trip we went. And he had a ball because he learned a lot about water. But in a lot, in a lot of, I was talking about Asian cultures before and how I'd had to adapt. But one of the things... In a, in a number of cultures is it's it's as much about what's not said as what is said. And so learning to read body language and learning to understand when people are being politely saying saying yes as opposed to meaning yes and uh, learning him being able to sort of pick up the side conversations and the context and then slowly learning that was, was really... Um, was a really wonderful experience and then we'd go back and he'd help with a lot of the ongoing communication but we had a choice of when you go into a community you can do a project and deliver a solution or you can become you can show that you really value them and so we ended up getting invited to um, one of the ladies who helped lead the local PDAM local water authority to her her son's wedding and you you become sort of those experiences you hold on to forever because uh, they're they're ones where you're you've given an opportunity to have a window into other people's lives and and so yeah so for me it's about staying connected and seeing what the projects are happening but but also what journey have those people been on and some of them go on and do amazing things and uh, and you see cities really change over time. Well, I, I do have a question that. Uh, it's got a bit of a stigma of being uh, projected more to, you know, female um, engineers and that kind of thing. Mm. But I do wonder because you've been involved in when so many different hats and been all across the globe, work-life balance. <laughs> How does that work out over the years? Uh, it's probably varied at different stages. I mean, I think, and every, one of the things I someone said to me once, well, there's two things that I'll, I'd share on that. Someone said to me once, they said, in life, you've got in your career, you've got to think about the three I's: your impact, your influence, and your income. And so, this is sort of a sidebar tangent that I'm taking you on before I talk about family and kids. But for me, that's like a really helpful question when you're thinking about roles: of how do you have a positive impact and how do you have a positive influence? But but yes, for most people, there's also a consideration of income and what's and that varies. For some people, are happy living in a tent. Uh, and and living a, or living a very simple lifestyle, which is great. And some people want to live a really uh, extravagant lifestyle and everything in between. But sitting there, sitting there, going when you think about your family is for you and your partner and your kids. What's the lifestyle you want to create for them? And 
Therefore, what are the roles where you can have a positive impact, influence, and income that creates that? And then, so that's sort of the the, the conversation around income and the and the environment. I think for me, probably, I mean, if I talk about my wife, she's she's amazing for starters. But secondly, she's I think she's happier when I'm happy, if that makes sense. So if I'm doing if I'm working really hard and depressed or really hard and feeling really uninspired about my job and I'm just doing it because I have to, uh, that sort of impacts my how I my demeanor and how I'm feeling and the atmosphere that I create around me at home. Whereas if I'm uh, if I'm working She's, she she doesn't mind me working really hard as if I'm happy and if I'm inspired and yes valuing valuing and prioritizing time with kids and my wife and and valuing family but I think if you're in your place of flow and feeling happy as a person that is a huge part of balance um, but the other part is sort of working out what is the right mix and there's a depend. It depends on the role you're in, how much travel you do. It depends on the um, uh, the context. You know, I mean, some 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 couples both work really really high end full time jobs, and um, it's a real balancing act around travel and things. And some couples, one person works full time, one person works part time. So I think everyone has to have their own dynamic, but. It's that constant dialogue of going, are you, you mean, being honest with each other? Are you going, are you happy? Are you, are are we getting enough time together? Are we prioritizing each other? Are we doing these things and, and then evolving from that space? I feel like I'm talking a lot, but I suppose it's my job to talk a lot No, but it's so interesting and it's a very, um, it's like dialogue is so important. And when you're talking about like, you know, being happy as an individual to come together is, is, it's key. Mm. And we're really happy that you're sharing that with us. Exactly. Because, and we obviously appreciate the fact that you are yeah. sharing this with us also because it is your personal life and your personal experiences. And you obviously have been inspiring us by sharing your professional, a little bit, a very little <laughs> part of your professional <laughs> um, journey, but also this other element of you that is you know then as a husband as a partner and and it's beautiful to hear that Mm. because many people can benefit from that in fact us in our early years without a partner and family we we think about it as well so thank you so much then i think that the industry that we're in needs more people that dream big like you do um and that actually you know the world needs people that actually think that they can change it because then we change it. Um, so I'm glad that you didn't decide to yes. do that. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have met you. <laughs> That's true. We never would have got to yeah. have this podcast. Oh, Jane, it's so good to hear from you. Thank Honestly. you so much for your time. We would love to have you again so we can talk about all the projects. <laughs> One hour well, isn't think, enough. Yeah, yeah it'd be fun. Let's see if we could actually get you down to because um, there's so much that we'd be interested in, you know, from a water perspective and water and gender has such a big role to play as well. And there's so much that we have sure does. Space. So yeah, if you. What's it? What's interesting? The the water, like I didn't talk about it so much, but one of the things they just that when we talk about people evolving their approaches around international development is. Uh, they worked out obviously in India, for example, the, a lot of the the um, re- regional communities are quite hierarchical, and the men are the chief of the village. But they worked out to bring sanitation and bring water solutions. The people who brought the change mm. were the children and the women, and so they started doing education programs in the schools. And then the kids would go home and say to their parents, "Why aren't we washing our hands? Why aren't we using clean water?" And the and they started making songs in the schools that the kids would sing around the villages, and then, um, but also the the mothers and they they were the ones who were cook in those cultures and contexts. They were cooking and cleaning, water, and yeah. so they started. They were collecting the water. So just because you've got a hierarchical system, um, which hopefully changes over time, but just because you've got that doesn't mean 
like the the leader of something isn't always the person that's going to drive the change. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, and so the power of women and children in international development is so amazing and that's been such a real lesson learned and journey but we can talk more about that some other time (laughs) but uh but I think that's yeah I found that really uh exciting when when I started to learn about that on my journey for an ending note um when you read be your future self now what does Dan see himself in five ten years wow that's a big question and uh well I think I I had uh I surprised. This is part of the reason I enjoyed it. I, I found that I was living on a farm, for example, and I didn't know that I'd be living on a farm until I started writing the letter. And we had views of the ocean, and we were doing all this living sustainably, all that sort of thing, which was really cool. But we were, um, I'd created all these different companies, and uh, so one of them was this development company for decarbonisation in the resources sector. One of them was a new model for scaling international development, um, a bit like the Operation Water, but an evolved sort of version of that. One of them was a sustainability. So I'd almost, I suppose I'd, I felt, I found that it, my future self had designed and created a whole lot of different companies that were helping have different impacts in different spheres. It's probably, it's probably the quick answer, but uh, I hadn't expected that when I started writing the letter. So I look forward to hearing yes. about your letters and... And what your future self does. Thanks, Han. Thanks, Laura.